This ethics podcast is dedicated in the merit of the complete and total recovery of Chana Shulamit Bat Rachel. This is a woman who was recently diagnosed with late stage leukemia, and we hope and pray that she merits a complete and total recovery. And the merit of our Torah study today will redound to her benefit. If you would like to dedicate an upcoming episode of the Athedge Podcast or any one of our other amazing podcasts here at Torch from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas, send me an email, rabbiwalbejimu.com or visit our website, torchweb.org. Once you are on our website, you can look at our upcoming programs and we're doing something a little bit interesting and a little bit unique in the year that is upcoming. Of course, when the year begins, everyone has big plans for how they're going to make this upcoming year, 2022, the best year possible. And of course, at the Torch Center, we have some ideas of how to improve your life. And on January 3rd, which is a Monday, at 7.30 Central, we're going to be launching a brand new series. It's going to be a 10-week series called Musser Masterclass. And the objective of this series is to improve your character. Of course, we all are comprised of good character, and a little bit of bad character as well. But for most of us, you know, to understand really what makes up our character, what are our strengths, and what are our weaknesses, and what do we need to do to improve, and how do we fix our character? Most of us, it's just a big mess. And in the Torch Center, we're going to start a new class. This is going to be a live class. It's going to be available if you happen to live locally in the Torch Center. But if you're not local, it's going to be online at torchzoom.com. That's a direct link to the Torch Zoom account. And the objective of this 10-week program, it's 10 Mondays beginning January 3rd, is to learn how to identify your characteristics, to find out what are your good traits, what are your bad traits, and to develop a plan for fixing those character traits and improving yourself. It's learning really how to look inwardly, how to kind of do some introspection to learn your character and then to improve your character and refine your character and become a better person in the year upcoming. Of course, that's what we want to do. 2022 is upon us and there's no greater New Year's resolution than to improve yourself and improve your character. And you could do that with us here at the Torch Center. The name of this program is called Musser Masterclass. And it's better if you sign up online because then we can send you all the class materials like the guidebook and the handouts and the worksheets because this can be very practical. It's less theoretical. It's more practical. So if you want to sign up, there's going to be a link in the description of this podcast. Musser Masterclass. Sign up. It is free. If you go to the website, you will see that there is a donation box. You could give an optional donation. Of course, we appreciate that. But it's not necessary. It's free. Join us in the upcoming year, studying together, improving together every Monday at 7.30 Central. We have people coming from all over the world, even from the United Kingdom. We have friends who are already signed up, and it's going to be at 1.30 in the morning in England, and they want to join the Muslim Master Class. And if they join, why don't you join as well? Click the link and come sign up with us. And now let us begin this current 
Ethics Podcast. We are up to chapter five, Mishnah number 25. This is a very fun and interesting Mishnah. It's got lots of gold, amazing ideas. I love this Mishnah, maybe my favorite yet. Who Haya Omer? He used to say the author of the previous Mishnah, Yehuda Ben Tema, is the author of our Mishnah as well. What did he used to say? Ben Chamesh Shanim Lamikra. At five years old, that's when you begin scripture. Ben Eser Shanim Lamishnah. At ten years old, begin studying Mishnah. Ben Shlosh Esrei, at thirteen years old, Lamitzvos. That's when you start observing the mitzvos. Ben Chamesh Esrei, at fifteen, led Gemara to Talmud. Gemara and Talmud are synonymous. Gemara is the Aramaic word for Talmud. Talmud is Hebrew. Gemara is Aramaic. Because the Talmud was written in Aramaic, it's often called Gemara. Okay, so that's at 15. Ben Shmona Esrei Chuppah at 18. That's the time to go to the Chuppah, to the wedding canopy. Ben Esrim Lirdof at the age of 20. It's time to run, to pursue. Ben Shloshim at 30. Likoach to full strength. Ben Arbaim at 40. Libina, to Bina, which is a word of understanding. There's various different kinds of intellect, Chachma, Bina, Das, etc. Bina is understanding, and that is when you arrive at 40, you have understanding. Okay. Ben Chamishim Le'etza at 50 for Eitza, which is counsel or advice. Ben Shishim Le'zitna at 60. Zitna means old age. And at 70, Le'seva, which is a ripe old age, which is like kind of a, a good old age. Ben Shmonim Le'gvura, at 80, it's for gvur, which is strength. And bentishim at 90, lasuach. Lasuach means, they translate here as to stoop over. Uh, but it might mean other things, as we shall yet see. Ben mea at a hundred kilomes. It's like you're dead. Ve'avar ubatel men olam. And you have passed on, and you have left the world. This is an interesting Mishnah. It's kind of going through the lifetime, the lifespan of someone who lives to 100. A life well lived will follow this pattern. At the age of five, you are already being reared and trained to study scripture and then Mishnah and then Talmud. And then we have this whole lifespan, this kind of overview of a life from 20 to 30. Every decade is a new kind of you, a new kind of person, as described in this Mishnah. Now, today, there's a lot of studies to try to improve longevity. And people want to live to 200 and maybe 500. And there's the Methuselah project. Why can't we live to 1,000? Isn't it interesting? Today, it's very common for people to live over 100 and maybe even over 110. In this passage parish, we read about Jacob introducing himself to Pharaoh, and he's like, how old are you? Well, I'm 130. Why does the Mishnah stop at 100? Isn't that interesting? So I saw in the Maharal, he says something which I think can serve as a fitting introduction to this whole discussion. He says that the reason why it's giving us a 100-year lifespan is because this Mishnah is trying to tell us what a person should do over a lifetime and a hundred is the number which is associated with the temple. The temple. The temple, sanctuary in the temple is a hundred cubits tall. And when a person is living a life, you're trying to model yourself after the sanctuary. 
And that's why it stops at 100, not because a person is bound to die at 100, but this is trying to create a certain structure of a human life, well-lived. The result of that is you're building this temple, this sanctuary, that's going to be a replica of the Temple of Jerusalem, and that's why it's at 100. That's why it stops at 100, because that's really the goal, not to mean that you're capped at 100. There is a well-known myth or a well-believed myth that people have at the age of 120. People wish other people, I'll live to 120 as if 120 you're going to die. It doesn't say that anywhere in the sources. It is just a misunderstanding of the sources. You can live to 150, no problem. If the Almighty gives you life, again, we're not guaranteed even another second of life. But there's nothing that says that you have to die at the age of 100 or 120. But because this is trying to indicate to us the objective of, the, of, of life, really, is to make yourself into a replica of the temple. That's why it stops at 100, to hint to you that this is what's being described over here. The temple, of course, was God's sanctuary in this world. In this world, the world that's most distant from the spiritual reality, got to be here. You build a temple, you build a sanctuary, and God will dwell in your midst. That's the pitch. That's the bargain. And with ourselves building our own little edifice of life, we could do the same thing. And this is the guidance how to do it. An amazing idea. Heaven and the heavenly realm doesn't need to stay in heaven. It could come down here. A person could do that. A person can transform themselves into being a sanctuary for God. Of course, when you start off, you have nothing. You have a soul. You have all the potential. You have all the tools in place. But a person, when they start off, they're completely dominated by the foreign god. We call that the Yitzhahara. But over the course of, of life, if you have good training, good mentors, you have access to good tools, you engage in the manual to do this, the Torah, you could bring God into your life. You could become a seat for God within you, like the temple. And that is the mission over the course of a person's hundred years here. Now you'll notice the author of this Mishnah is the same author of the previous Mishnah, which ends with a prayer. Yehiratzon may be the will that the temple will be rebuilt Speedily in our days, accordingly, there's a nice continuity here. We don't have the temple, and we're praying for it to be rebuilt. But in the absence of the temple, we have the instructions and the framework for how to create a certain replica within ourselves of the temple. Now, the broad idea of this Mishnah is that people change. You start off as one thing, and there's development, there's transformation. Over the course of a lifetime, people change, and therefore you have to be aware of that. It's not just one block, one unit of life. There are different times, and there's development, and there's transformation. There's a certain progression here. And it's also interesting that we're not trying to accomplish everything on day one, precocity 
It's not really encouraged this mission. Yeah, at the age of five, you start. What about the kids who could study at age three? It's not necessarily here being encouraged. We talk about the great savants and geniuses. Well, at the age of 12, they already knew X, Y, or Z. Here, it seems like to be much more measured and and patient and following a certain sequence of, of timing. You start here and then you move on to there and then you progress slowly. You're playing the long game. And I think... Maybe this is one of the most important principles of parenting. Maybe one of the most important principles is that you have to recognize this idea. It's the long game. We're trying to figure out how to map out a life over the course of 100 years. And the goal is at the end of the 100 years, you have this edifice, this sanctuary built. You try to build it overnight. It's probably not going to be built really strongly. And a wind comes and your edifice topples over. It's an amazing idea. There's a certain patience we have to adopt. This is the long game. We're not trying to achieve something overnight. Perhaps this is the central aspect of pedagogy. My grandfather used to always say that parenting is half planting and half building. There's two ways you could kind of effectuate something. You could build a building and a building, whatever you put in the building, whatever bricks you lay, that's what you have. If you don't lay a brick, there's no way that the brick itself will beget another brick. It doesn't work like that. Everything is manual and everything's done. You could do it really fast. Why not? But a plant You can't really plant and say, give me a sequoia tree. Let's put up a cedar overnight. It doesn't work like that. You plant and you really have to wait and really do nothing. (laughs) And maybe water it a little bit and monitor it. And if we have a deep Texas freeze, maybe cover it a little bit. But it's really hands off. And the development and the transformation happens from within. The tree grows in ways that you didn't even expect. But provided that you provide, you know, those those guardrails and whatever it needs, the nourishment, the sunlight, the watering, etc., it itself will develop on its own. And the proper balance between the, the building, the things that you need to do, and the rigidity that you have to set in place, and then the planting, the ideas that you plant and you don't expect to see any results for years. And everything's happening beneath the surface. And the transformation, the blooming, the blossoming only happens much, much, much later. The proper balance between those two, striking the balance, that is pedagogy. That is parenting. Kids are like plants. We're told, we're told in the Torah. Ha'adam eats hasada. Man is a tree of the field. Now, what exactly that means? There's many different, of course, dimensions of interpretation. But certainly this idea that a person is like a tree and just like a tree, you you plant the seeds in the ground and you don't expect results for a long, long time. That is very much one of the ideas of that, of that concept. Patience, timing, mapping out a lifetime over a hundred years, that is central to human development. I remember reading this one line. It's such a clever line. And it's so memorable. 
once I say it, you'll say that was pretty clever. And then you too won't forget it. It was, uh, there's an author and statistician named Nassim Nicholas Taleb. You may have heard of him. So he once, I read, he wrote, he wrote this. I thought it was so clever. He's like, you can't make nine women pregnant and produce a baby in one month. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. Some things you just need time. You need nine months and that's it. There's no way to short circuit the system. Here we're told that to, to build this sanctuary that we're trying to build, you really need a lifetime. And if you try to accomplish all at once, it's not really going to work. This is the long game. The children are like a tree that they have to develop on their own over time. Let it germinate. Let it develop underground. Wait and be patient. My grandfather, blessed memory, who was a renowned pedagogue, he used to say that the most important quality of parenting is to not mess the kids up. And if you plant a seed in the ground, the number one goal is to just stay away and make sure if there are, you know, if there are pests or rodents, you got to get rid of those and you have to make sure it's positioned properly. But most of your job is just to not mess it up. It will happen on its own. That is parenting. That is education. Kids, naturally, they have a soul. They have such power within them. And we think that we could kind of make them into who we want to. We can mold them. It's not how it works. Your job is to not mess things up. And if you don't mess things up, most likely they will emerge and flourish. So my rabbi says, well, if the objective is to just avoid mistakes, why do you need expert pedagogues and educators? Why is it important to train parents? And he said, because if they're not experts, then they will mess their kids up. But the goal is mistake avoidance. But most people are just blundering the way through this. They are predisposed to making mistakes. And that's why we need to train parents and educators and pedagogues so that they don't make mistakes. So we have an idea here. Again, this is maybe the most important idea of this Mishnah. Timing is critical for development. You know, we learned this lesson recently. My daughter, she's now two years old, two and a half really, and I thought she was ready to be toilet trained. I really thought she was ready to be toilet trained. So it was uh, Thanksgiving weekend. So we have a long weekend. Kids are not in school from Wednesday afternoon till Monday. Perfect amount of time. She's two and a half. She's ready. Now, I know a lot of people are thinking two and a half. Who lets their kid go to two before toilet training them? Well, us, the Wolbies. Sorry about that. So uh, we tried and it turns out she wasn't quite ready. So that's a mistake in timing. And a lot of parents pride themselves in saying, oh, I got my kid toilet trained uh, and there were 18 months. And I, I think that might be a mistake. If the kid's not ready for something and you push them towards doing something that they're not ready for, it's not going to work because you are tampering with a system that is a very complex and sensitive system. And when a kid is ready for something, you have to jump on it. And when they're not ready, you have to 
hold back because otherwise you may ruin the child. The Talmud says this clearly. Again, two points. Number one, if they're not ready for something, don't do it. But if they are, don't miss the moment. Overseeing the timing is maybe the most important job of the parent or the pedagogue. Knowing when they're ready for something and then pouncing, but not pouncing ahead of time. That's the sweet spot. So Talmud says, well, before the kid's ready to study, don't try to get them to be precocious and say, oh, let me teach them when they're three and they can't read and they don't have the mental capacity to do it, but let me do it anyhow. Big mistake. You may be ruining the child. But once they are ready, in the words of the Talmud, stuff them like an ox. You pound them. Once they're ready, you pound them. Don't just like always be, you know, half measures. Zero to a hundred. They're not ready, they're not ready. When they're ready, give it all you got. Engorge them with learning, with Torah. Just absolutely make them replete with it. Stuff them like a notch in the words of the Talmud. And that's the balance. You gotta know when the timing is right. And sometimes you plant the seeds. And again, you are not expecting for results to be manifested for years and decades. The Talmud says something really scary. I'll tell it to you and you'll say, there's no way the Talmud says that. And then you'll email me, rabbiwomajimam.com and I'll show you the source. Talmud says that when a child learns to speak, when a child learns to speak, and they start saying, abba, baba, mama, dada, they start speaking. That is a critical juncture in the child's development. And at that time, the parent should start speaking to the child in Hebrew, in the language of the Torah, in the language of God, in the holy language. And what should the parent teach the child? The Shema. And the verse in Deuteronomy, Torah tziva lanu Moshe mora shachi Torah was commanded us by Moshe. It is the heritage of the community of the congregation of Jacob. The idea that we had a, a prophet, Moshe, who gave us the Torah from God, and this is our heritage, that's an idea we want to implant in the child before they even know what they're talking about. We're playing with their fertile minds. We are brainwashing our children. We're indoctrinating them. And I'm using those words deliberately. I know they're very provocative. But everything we do to our children is brainwashing. Everything that I'm doing to you right now is brainwashing. Hello, I'm brainwashing you. I apologize. I'm cleaning it, scrubbing it, making sure it's nice and clean. Brainwashing it, making sure it's just supple and ready to absorb good ideas, cleaning all the bad ideas out there. That's a good thing. With a child, it's very critical that the right ideas get in and the wrong ideas stay out. Because again, the minds, especially of young children, are very, very impressionable. Very impressionable. And the ideas that are planted at the, at the right spot when they're, when there's a change, when there's a shift, those ideas are going to stick for life. And again, you might not see any results 
for a long time, but you're implanting those ideas. You're laying the groundwork of what this brain and what this child and what this soul, what this heart is going to live a life. What kind of life they're going to live? Now, the part of the Talmud that I said, you won't believe me. Talmud says, if you don't do this, it's like you're burying the child. And again, it's, it's very, it's a very aggressive, a very provocative statement, like burying the child. But the Talmud understands the architects of the Talmud were the biggest experts of pedagogy and understanding human development. And they're teaching us a very powerful idea, and they're trying to get the message across. At this juncture in the development, it is such a critical juncture because what you're going to do at this time is you're, you're setting up the software. The base code for this person is being established now, and what you do will determine the life that this child is going to have. Now, there's an amazing insight from the Chassid Yaivitz. Again, this is still the introduction of this Mishnah. Humans are much more than sophisticated animals. We're a class unto ourselves in many, many ways, of course. But the idea that he highlights, I want to share with you. He says that animals are more, are more static. You know, the, the animal being born and the abilities that it has very quickly after birth are really going to be the abilities that it has for the duration of its life. Humans, on the other hand, are born very undeveloped and very vulnerable. And there's this idea of of social gestation that humans really have two periods of gestation. They have in the womb gestation, and they have out of the womb gestation. And that's why kids can't really walk or crawl until they've been basically nine months out of the womb, because that's really the full gestation. That's an idea that's been posited by uh, some of the, uh, some of the scientists who study these things. But there's a, a, um, a critical difference here between humans and animals. Animals are static. They start off very advanced relative to humans, but they kind of maintain that level, basically stay the same for their lifetimes. Humans start off with almost nothing, zero skills, but they're dynamic. They they change rapidly and they transform and they are much more capable of, of learning much more than an animal can. And that's really what this mission is trying to get at. That's the framework of this Mishnah. And then he concludes his introduction with a sharp line. The human has the choice. Of course, sometimes the choice is not necessarily done by the human themselves. It's to be, to be the environment, the society, the parents, the family, the community. But humans can choose to be more static. And by that measure, the human is no better than the animal. Human has this Tremendous ability to develop in the ways outlined. But if they don't, then really how are they better than animals? Animals also don't develop. So that's the introductions I wanted to share with you before we begin this Mishnah. But an incredible idea. We're outlining in the first five years and five to ten and fifteen to uh, ten to fifteen and fifteen to twenty, then twenties and thirties and forties and all these different eras. Eras of decades in a person's life. So first of all, you'll notice that the growth 
And the change happens over, over decades. The 20s, that's for chasing. And then the 30s, well, that's strength. And then the 40s, well, that's insight. And then the 50s, well, that's advice or counsel. So first of all, we're told in, in scripture that the average lifespan is about 70 years. And by the way, today, the average life expectancy globally is also about 70 years. If you think about it, if a decade is a unit of life, it does follow a certain pattern. We have seven days of the week and we have seven, so to speak, decades of the life. It is interesting that a decade is viewed by our Mishnah as a distinct unit and you got really seven of them. But there's a quote that I was reminded of when thinking about this Mishnah from Bill Gates. I know he's a controversial figure, but I like this quote. He used to say that most people overestimate what they can do in a year. But most people underestimate what they can do in a decade. And maybe that fits into this uh, paradigm of our Mishnah. Every decade is an opportunity to transform yourself. And of course, by extension, to transform your life and to build a central building block in the edifice you're trying to build, in the model sanctuary you're trying to construct. And therefore, we're told, 10 years, you have 10 years to do something radically transformative to yourself and to the world. And as you progress, your opportunities are open and are changed. I would imagine some opportunities are closed as well. And therefore, you have to make sure you do the right thing in the right time. Now, it's interesting, if you look at just this this Mishnah, we're told what you do in your 20s and 30s in decades, but the first 20 years are broken up into periods of five years. So zero to five, we're not told anything. I would imagine that zero to five, it's kind of, you know, family time, learning to walk, learning to talk, maybe learning how to read. And then we have five to 10, and that's about learning scripture. And 10 to 15, we're told, that's the time to learn Mishnah. Mishnah, of course, is the laws, the canon of the oral Torah of laws of the Torah. And 15 to 20, well, it's five years to master Talmud. Why are the first 20 years broken up into smaller increments than the rest of the lifetime? So I saw an interesting Maharal again. He says that the first 20 years are different than the rest of a person's lifetime. How so? So even, even, even today, you know, you can't, can vote, you're not an adult till you're, till you're 18. And then there's other things, you know, you can't drink or, or smoke or something like that till 20. Even our society looks at the age of 20 as a person maturing from youth, from an adolescent, into an adult who made their own decisions. But he says something interesting. He says that every big change demands a decade. And by the way, one of the reasons why people fail, not, it's not because they don't have the ability, is because they don't put in the decade. If you want to undertake something, you need a decade. And you try for a month, and you know what? It's not, just not going. 
That could either mean because it's not the right thing for you to choose or it could mean it is the right thing for you to choose. You just need to invest a decade. And that's the problem. You see people who are very talented, but again, they expect immediate results and they invest a month, a half a year, even five years, and they don't see the transformative success that they had anticipated, and they quit. And they go on something else, and they go on something else, and they go on something else. Here we're told, you need a decade. Now, you should be seeing a little bit of success. This is, we're told also, again, the sources is not me speculating here. You should see a little success after five years. If you don't see even a little bit of success after five years, then it's time to table that plan. Then it means that the failure was, in fact, in choosing the objective. But if you quit after a month, then it's not necessarily because you'd made a poor choice. You might not have put in the hours. So you need a decade. But when it comes to the things that you do in your youth, you only need five years. Why? Because at that juncture in your life, you go to school. And at school, the objective of school is to divide the work between the instructor and the pupil. And therefore, the instructor, they invest the five years, and the pupil invests the five years, and therefore you have a decade. It's just distributed between the pupil and the instructor. So the principle is still true. You need a decade to master anything. But here, the decade is divided between the instructor and the pupil. Which, by the way, another pet peeve of mine. If you have someone who is lecturing and pontificating and bloviating from a lectern... And even if they develop nice ideas and they present these nice ideas in beautiful flowery terms, if they're doing 100% of the work, the pupils don't benefit. Here we're told that you do need to invest a decade, but because you're young, you only need to put in 50% of the work. The other 50% of the work will be put in by the instructor. But that doesn't mean the instructor does 100% of the work. It means the instructor does 50 and the pupil does 50. If the instructor does 100%, the pupil has done zero and the pupil won't retain anything. The proper way to instruct students, children, young people, is by giving them half the work and you doing, you being the instructor, doing the other half. And once they're 20... They're on their own, really. They're supposed to do all the work. They should have the necessary tools in place to do 100% of the work. But this is what education is. You do half the work as the instructor, and you elicit, you demand half the work to be done by the students. You're training them to ride a bike. You're holding, you're guiding, You're correcting, but they have to work as well. And once they learn to ride, you let them flourish. Half by you, half by them.
And the goal is that they should learn the skills needed and they should have a little bit of the appreciation of the process. They should enjoy it. If you go through 20 years of education and you don't love learning, then your education will end and you will never do the decade of hard work on your own. So the goal of these 20 years is 50% is done by the instructor, the guidance, the guardrails, the correcting mistakes, and the other 50% is done by the person themselves, the pupil, and then they're going to learn how it's done and they're going to develop a taste for this. One of my biggest problems with the world is that we don't do education in this format. We have had nearly universal education, certainly in the developed countries, for about 100 years now. And we have a enormous population base relative to 500 years ago. So there's so many more people and so much more organized instruction. Where are all the titans? Where are all the giants? Where are they? You would imagine that we should have, you know, 500 Edisons and Einsteins. Because again, we have such a larger population base and so many more people to choose from and so much more education. The answer is, is that we're not doing it properly. The standardized education is not done properly. In general, standardized education kills the polymaths, but we're doing too much of the instruction. It's supposed to be 50-50. It's supposed to be kind of helping the pupil develop on their own. We're giving them crutches. And if a child learns to walk with crutches, they'll never walk properly and they'll certainly never be able to run. They won't develop a love of learning because the truly transformational accomplishments happen in decade 20 and 30 and 40 and 50. That's when it actually happens. But if you don't have the first 20 years done properly, 50, 50, the kids won't grow up to be the Edisons and the Da Vinci's, etc. Of course, I do believe that in the yeshiva system, they do this a lot better. A lot better. Not perfect, but a lot better. So you are seeing a great flowering of scholarship in the Torah world, but as a critique of the universal education we have today, I think it is a really, a really, a really damning criticism that I think we're not doing it properly. And that is a, um, you know, it's a real shame. I heard from a mentor of mine. He said that the objective of grade school, what's the objective of grade school? The number one most important thing is that the kids know how to read. It's really sad today that even though we do have universal education, a lot of kids actually don't know how to read. Most important thing, know how to read. And then a little bit of love of learning, just a little bit, a little little bud that can be developed. 
and a little bit of understanding, this is in the context of the religious context, a little bit of an understanding of what we believe, a little framework of our faith. But again, the goal is to get them to experience a little bit of the hard work on their own and to not be turned off. I've finished my rant against standardized education. Let's actually get into this Mishnah. At age five, it's time to start studying scripture. Why age five? So the commentaries tell us something fascinating. Man is like a field. Man is like a tree. Man is like a sapling. The halacha is, when you plant a fruit tree, the first three years, you don't touch the tree. And in year four, those fruits are brought to Jerusalem and they're sanctified. But you don't consume those fruits. And in year five, the fruits are all yours to enjoy. And because man is like a tree of the field, that's why the first five years we do nothing. Once it's year five, not to mean we do nothing, but we, we don't try to get any fruits out of this. It's all about let it, let the tree grow. On year five, that's when you start the re-education. Now today, most yeshivos that follow the Torah don't actually do it the way it's described in this Mishnah. And it's a great mystery as to why things changed. But you will be happy to learn that there is a school and there's lots of institutions that follow this school of, of, of thought. There is a school that says we're going to follow this Mishnah precisely. And this is known as the Zilberman method. You, you can actually Google it. There's a good Wikipedia article that I read about this. I know people that went to this kinds of school. And the Zilberman method says we're going to follow this Mishnah exactly the way it's telling us to. So from 5 to 10, they're not going to touch the Mishnah. It's all about Scripture. And they're going to memorize Scripture. Every kid's going to know all the Scripture by heart. And then from 10 to 15, they're going to memorize all of Mishnah. And all the kids will know Mishnah by heart. In most yeshivos, at the age of 10, the kids are already studying Talmud. And they start Mishnah maybe at the age of eight, seven, much earlier. So it is interesting to note that this was actually changed. And it's a, it's a very difficult problem because we have the Mishnah. We have, we're told, what are you supposed to do? And in most communities, this advice is ignored. And it's a very problematic problem. And there's been some really capable and advanced world-class pedagogues that made these decisions. But I, I think the answer is that they're trying to engage at the highest level at the earliest point possible. And therefore, yes, you do need the baseline of scripture to know Mishnah, and you know you need to know Mishnah to know Talmud. And therefore, if you wanted to actually study all of it, all of Scripture and all of Mishnah and all of Talmud, this would be the best way to do it. 
But the objective today is not for complete knowledge. Rather, it is to have them interested. And they should want to study. And the way to do that is to blow their mind. And the quickest way you could get to the point where someone's like, oh my goodness, Torah is incredible. My mind is just in pieces. Totally blew me away. The faster you could get to that point, whatever route takes you there fastest, that's the one you should take. And therefore, they try to say, let's get a little, a little baseline of Scripture so we can get to Mishnah, and a little baseline of Mishnah so we can get to Talmud, because that is really what engages a person on the deepest level. And when you have that realization, your life's changed forever. Once you have that, a little dose of that, your life has changed forever. You will forever have an affinity towards Torah. I think, I think, this is me speculating. I think that that is the reason why this was changed. Indeed, it's true. If you, if you want, if the goal was knowledge of everything, this is what you would do. This makes more sense. This is what's described in the Mishnah. If you have a different problem, the problem is that people say, well, you know, today they have their TikTok. And they have their Snapchat and their Instagram. It's very, very hard for someone like that to be interested in reading Aramaic texts. It's just very hard. And therefore, you have to, you you have a different set of challenges that you have today. And therefore, the objective is to get you as soon as possible to have that experience of, of the true pleasure of Torah because that will change your life forever. That's my suspicion. But again, it, violates, or at least it opposes the outline of this Mishnah. Now, at age 10, you study Mishnah. Mishnah, again, is the laws. It's much easier than Talmud. You've spent five years mastering scripture. Now it's time to move to Mishnah. You spent five years mastering Mishnah. It's time to move to Talmud. But in the interim, you have, at the age of 13, that is when a person becomes obligated in mitzvahs. Now, according to Jewish law, actually, this is for boys. For girls, it's at the age of 12, they mature faster, and therefore they are incorporated into the obligation to adhere to mitzvahs at a younger age. Now, why at the age of 13 for boys? Why is that the juncture where they become obligated in mitzvahs. Now, of course, everyone agrees it is a very good idea to not just start at the age of 13. You got to start much younger so that way they get trained. But the point in time where they become bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah, 12 and 13, a girl is 12, a boy is 13, that is when they're obligated themselves. Why 13? So, the basic answer is that at this juncture, on average, children hit their puberty, and that is one definition of adulthood. And the sages estimated that's around 13 for boys and 12 for girls. Apparently, even today, girls mature faster. And to me, this is really interesting that one of the definitions of adulthood is the ability to procreate. That's when you become a person on your own, which 
kind of has a certain degree of responsibility to it. You are responsible. You are capable. The Almighty is showing you that you're capable of actually being responsible for another human. Of course, bad advice. Uh, and we'll talk more about uh, marriage and uh, and parenthood a little bit later. But there is a juncture of development at 13. Now you are an adult and now you're responsible for the things that adults are responsible for. But Rashi says something that kind of blew my mind. Rashi says that one of the sources that a boy becomes an adult, a man at the age of 13, is from a verse in Scripture in Genesis chapter 34. Well, what happened in chapter 34 of Genesis? Jacob has 12 sons and one daughter. And his daughter Dina is kidnapped and raped by this terrible guy named Shem. And two of Jacob's sons do a big ruse, get everyone to circumcise. We know the story. And when they're sick and they're bedridden, they come with swords and they slew an entire city. Who are those two sons? Shimon and Levi, the second and third sons of Jacob. If you look at that verse, it describes, this is chapter 34, verse 25. The two sons of Jacob took, who are these two sons? Shimon Valevi, Dina, the brothers of Dina, Ishharbo, every man took their sword. The verse describes these two boys as men. How old were they? Shimon was 14. Levi was 13. And therefore, we know the Torah defines Levi, a 13-year-old, as a man. And therefore, says Rashi, we have a source now that at the age of 13, that's when a person, that's when a boy becomes a man. So to me, I just found this so incredible that, first of all, Shimon Levi defending their sister and destroying a whole city, they're teenagers. I couldn't believe that. These are teenagers. That's it, 13 and 14, little kids. But also, I think this is a nice definition of adulthood. Adulthood is is like the chaos of teenagehood. There's a certain explosion of hormones and there's going to be rebellion and that's a child coming into their own. That's a child kind of developing themselves independently. Now, of course, teenagers, you know, they've earned their stereotypes justly. They have earned it. There is merits behind all the things they say about teenagers, I've been told. But what this is revealing to us is that there are individual qualities of a child that are not necessarily manifested until they reach this point, And then a certain ferocity... <laughs> A certain explosion of character is going to be developed, was going to be exposed, and they made you some crazy things, but now you realize this is an independent human, not just a child. And of course, 
the hope is, is that those qualities will be honed, will be, you know, you'll maybe scrape off some of the rough edges a little bit, sharpen it, channel it for its proper use. But to me, this is an amazing idea. At the age of 13, the child is acting crazy, potentially. And now they're acting as themselves, not just as a child. At the age of 15, it's time to teach them Talmud. Your brain is a sloshy little thing, which is the most advanced piece of technology, piece of matter in existence. But unlike other advanced and complicated things, and the amount of it, by the way, that we know of how it actually works, it's like a tip, tip, tip of the tip of the iceberg. The only thing they really know is that, well, you know, this part of the brain lights up when they're thinking about X, Y, and Z, which is, again, the most unscientific way to actually figure out what's happening. To me, I think it's kind of ridiculous. Well, this part of the brain is flashing, as if that tells us really how it works. There is a at least an argument to be said that the, the soul, the seed of the soul is the brain. So we're talking about the most advanced thing in in the entire universe with the exception, of course, of God, right? God is the creator, but the holiest, most sublime thing is the human soul. Of creations, the soul is the highest thing, and it, the, the seed of its human brain, and we're trying to figure out by how it's lighting up. Of course, it's just uh, an exercise in futility. You know, they say that someone, God forbid, loses senses, other parts of the brain start doing things to compensate. Like the, the, the complexity of the brain and the capacity of the brain is just incredible. But it starts off and it's very undeveloped. And you try to give a child Talmud and it's just too advanced. And now as you mature, you're 15, you're starting to develop more abilities and you're capable of more sophistication. And then you spend five years and hopefully you've mastered Talmud. But again, the objective is to study it now your whole life. But at 18, well then, it's time to get married. Or at least to enter into the wedding canopy. What's the source for this? So this amazing Rashi here. Rashi says, it says the word Adam 18 times from the beginning of the Torah until marriage, till we, when he meets Eve. And that's hinting that 18 years, that's the right time to get married. And the idea, the basic idea is, is, you know, a man hits physical maturity around the age of 18, 18 to 20. And once you hit maturity, it's time to seek completion. And if you're alone and you don't have someone to share your life with, well, you're not complete. Once you are kind of physically, individually, as one node, as one half of a full unit, well, then it's time to find the other half, find the other puzzle piece. Now, the Talmud actually says that 18 is the beginning of the period of spousal seeking, but the end, listen to this, by when are you expected to have found your spouse? Well, that that comes at the age of 20. You have two years. The man gives you a two-year window to find a spouse. 
And the commentaries actually say, you know, you look at our Mishnah, it says 18, doesn't say 18 for marriage, it says 18 for wedding canopy for the chuppah. The chuppah is the beginning part of the marriage process in antiquity. The betrothal was done much earlier and it was separate from the marriage. Betrothal at 18 and marriage at 20. I think one of the biggest mistakes that Western society has made is to delay marriages. You know, today, the problem is, even if someone today wants to get married at 18, you have to find, you have, you have to find a willing accomplice. And that's the problem. Because our society has made the notion of getting married at such a young age, it's, it's totally anathema. And you look, you know, the average age of people getting married over the last hundred years, it has gone up tremendously. And there's lots of problems with that. You know, the longer someone lives as an individual, the harder it is for them to meld and to fuse into one with a different person. Here, it seems like, you know, once someone is ready, just like we talked about the whole theme of the Mishnah, timing is everything, right? Once someone's ready... The longer you wait, the harder it is to accomplish the goal. Now, in addition, once people are physically mature, they are wired to seek mates. And they'll end up with mates before their marriage. And many perhaps even find multiple mates before their marriage. And that is going to reduce the likelihood of that marriage actually being harmonious and lasting. Another thing, and these are all my pet peeves. I feel like this mission has all my pet peeves in one. Someone gets married when they're 30, 35, even later. They have a much shorter, much smaller window of fertility. And then you have, you know, a shrinking population. And that's a terrible thing. For many different reasons. So it's very hard to blame someone today for not getting married young because what could you do if you're in a society that doesn't encourage that? It's really hard. And one of the, to me, one of the big benefits of the Torah community is that these, you know, young marriages are very much encouraged. And I think it's, it's, uh, you know, it provides a happier life. At age 20, it's time to chase. The groundwork of a lifetime is in place for better or for worse. And now it's time to chase. What are you chasing? So the commentaries here say you're chasing something. What exactly it is? Well, that's going to determine what kind of life you're going to live. There's the rat race. Where you're chasing things that are really not going to help build your edifice, build your sanctuary. It could be, you know, a mad dash for eternity. You could be saying, well, I, I want to really build. I want to build myself, build my community, build my family. Transform the world, build the sanctuary. That could be what you're running for, or it could be something else. Depending on what kind of groundwork is laid, that's going to determine what kind of pursuit is undertaken. At the age of 30, you're at prime strength. The commentaries here note that the Levites would begin to carry on their shoulders the vessels of the tabernacle at age 30. 
Age 30 is when you have your full strength. I think even baseball sluggers peak at uh, at the age of 30. My grandfather used to always say that age 30, at that juncture, that's the age when someone needs to have direction in life. You can experiment a lot, try things out beforehand. But once you arrive at 30 and you don't have a direction, that's a problem. You got to make a choice, see what you want out of life and go pursue it. You have, you know, 40 years or maybe even 70 years to try to accomplish that. At age 40, it's time for insight. What's insight? Insight, those are the ideas and the understanding that are indirect. The way it's described in the literature. To understand something from something else. It's when an idea gets absorbed and the essence gets separated, so to speak, from the, uh, you know, the, the wrapping, the garment of the idea. Now, the commentaries here say that Moshe, at the end of his life, he tells the Jewish people, I've been with you. I've been teaching you for 40 years. And up till now, you don't really have an understanding of what I'm saying. But once you arrive at this point, if you've been studying for 40 years, now you are beginning to understand what I'm truly trying to convey to you. Says the Talmud, a student doesn't fully understand their teacher until they've studied and had the ideas that they've been studying percolating within them, within their head, within their heart, for 40 years. Only then will they begin to understand the insight of those lessons. You chew over something for 40 years, you're opening up portals of insight. In 1976 and 1977, my grandfather, blessed memory, unveiled a series of lectures which codified the principles, the foundations of his teacher's Torah. And his rationale for this was that 40 years ago, my teacher passed. And I have not stopped turning over and studying and chewing over all of his Torah. I've spent 40 years on it. And now I'm going to present to you my insight, my findings. Kind of an amazing idea. 40 years after his teacher passed, he never stopped. Turning it all over, studying it from every angle, ruminating on those ideas, and then he presented his findings and actually wrote a book on it, the principles that his teacher actually was trying to convey. At 50, it's time to give advice. Now you can become a mentor. It's not quite retirement age, but it is transitioning to a new phase of providing counsel and advice. At 60, well, that's old age. Old age has a very negative connotation. But the commentaries, they offer a completely different view. A zakain, which is an old person, 
is another way of saying a wise person, a person who has acquired wisdom. That's the definition of, a, of an old person, of a zakin. Zet shekana chachma. And the idea being, this is from the Maharal, as a person's physical capacities begin to decline, commensurate to the decline of their physical capacities is their increase of their mental and intellectual capacities. Wisdom is like fine wine. It improves with age. Provided that the person is someone who has been using their brain. This is the problem. Someone has not been using the brain. At the age of 60, they begin to decline in every way because their brain has not been honed and sharpened and developed. And therefore, they just go crazy because physically they lose it and mentally they lose it as well. There's an amazing Talmud, the book of Shabbos, page 152, about aging. It talks about, for example, someone who's very promiscuous, they age prematurely. And then it says, a Torah scholar, as they age, they get more wisdom. Whereas an ignoramus, as they age, they get more foolish. So aging is not this one process. It depends on what the organ the brain, the nuclear weapon, uh, for peaceful purposes, in your brain, balancing on your shoulders. What that has been doing over the course of the first 60 years is going to determine what kind of old age are you going to get. Is it going to be the fine wine, the aging of the fine wine, where it gets more wisdom, or is it going to get more foolish? My grandfather, blessed memory, used to talk about the, the ridges that get formed with concerted thought. If you open up the brain, not that I've ever seen this, but I've been told, if you open up the brain of a thinking person, you do an autopsy of a brain of a thinking person, and you compare that to the brain of a non-thinking person, they look like completely different organs because the brain actually changes with use. So you have these muscles if they have been used properly, and of course there's no better vehicle for that than the Torah, they're going to improve. At the age of 60, you're entering your prime. Whereas if you don't use it properly, they wither and get corrupted. I had a thought over the weekend. You have such a powerful organ. You got this nuclear weapon for peaceful purposes or not balancing on your shoulders and most people are completely unaware of it and they never actually get to experience what it's all about. So in my head, I thought this is like, you know, if you have a smartphone, most of you, I assume, have like a an iPhone or an Android and it's kind of got, it's got Wikipedia on it, Google search, you can listen to Torah podcasts, you have like a lot, not all, but a lot of the world's wisdom is available at the click of a screen and you can watch videos on it. And then you have a fool who says, you know what? You know what I have over here? Look at this. I could turn on the flashlight. <gasps> what an amazing thing. I got a flashlight. And they, they buy a really expensive thousand dollar phone 
And they only use it as a flashlight. What a shame. They never see what it's capable of. They never take it for a spin. That's most people's experience with their brains. It's just a flashlight. They never take it for a spin. They never find out what it's all about. And then when they're 60, the brain gets even more foolish because that's what happens. Whereas the other people who've honed and developed this and used it properly, the brain is flourishing and entering its prime at the age of 60. At 70, it's time for seva, which means a good life. It's the average lifetime. It's the average lifespan. And people are satisfied. You meet people like this and they say, I've lived a good life. If I go home now, I'm kind of ready for it. You speak to young kids, they're not, they're not quite there. They're still running, pursuing. Older, as people get older, it's almost like a, like a natural biological thing. They get ready to, uh, to transition. At 80, that's when you have gvura, might. Why is there might at the age of 80? The truth is, it's a verse in scripture. A person lives for 70 years. If it's mighty, if you've exceeded, you have more strength than most, you live 80. And at 90, it is Lasuach. So I mentioned earlier, Lasuach is you know defined by the art school as stooped over. The word Lasuach also means to converse. The verse tells us in scripture, in Genesis chapter 24, Vayetze Yitzchak lasuach basada. Isaac went out to go converse in the field. Says Rashi, conversing is another word for praying. We are like the Eskimos. The Eskimos have seven words for snow. Have you heard that? For us, it's just snow. In Texas, it's like, hey, hey, look, here's a picture on Google. This is what snow is. But the real, you know, the real Canadians, the real people live in the northern part of the country, they know of something called snow. But the Eskimos, they have all kinds of different names of snow because not every snow is different. There's the slushy snow, and then there's this snow, and that snow. You want to build an igloo, you got to have this snow and that snow. You've heard this idea. Eskimos have seven names for snow. Jews are like Eskimos when it comes to prayer. But we don't have seven names of prayer. We have ten. There are ten different names for prayer. And one of them is lasuach, to converse. When someone becomes so familiar and so close to God, they're chatting. You're chatting with God. If someone has worked 90 years and they're almost finished kind of wrapping up their sanctuary, their relationship with God is so close and homey, it's like a conversation. Now, Isaac in this story was 40 years old. This is when he meets Rebecca. He's 40 years old. Isaac is precocious. He is already someone at the age of 40 who is conversing with God 
in a chummy fashion. They're close. They're friendly. They're, they have a relationship. It's like a bilateral relationship. You want to chat with someone? You don't chat with someone that you never met with, right? Someone, someone you're not friendly with. You don't know them. You don't chat with them. But an old friend or a, a longtime colleague or coworker, someone that you know, your neighbor, you chat with. At the level of 90, a life well lived will result in someone having a very close and intimate relationship with God. And at the age of 100, so the Mishnah describes it, that's it, you're over, you're done. You're basically half dead. I, th- I think what this means is that at this time, you're, you're dead, meaning you've accomplished what you need to accomplish. We think of death as being the end of life. The truth is, from our perspective, death is the beginning of life. This life here is just about building your life. But actually living your life is once your soul is removed from your body and you no longer have those inhibitions, those bodily distractions holding you back. Life is about to begin. You're dead. You're closing off the world, the universe of preparation and you're about to begin the life of consumption. The world and its thrills don't titulate you anymore. You're on a spiritual journey. You are not seduced by the trivialities of life. You are ready to begin your true life. So this Mishnah is just incredible. You see why I like this? You see why I love this Mishnah? You see why it's so much gold here? Tremendous, tremendous Mishnah here. We are here for a purpose. We're trying to do something. We have a hundred years, hopefully. Again, we never know when our day is. We're not guaranteed even a second of life. Every breath is a miracle and a gift from God that demands that we thank Him for it. But our objective, to the best of our ability, is to try to build something transformational, something which is almost a model of the temple. We have 100 years to do it. And the first 20 years, we're learning the tools and the skills. We have mentors. And you don't want to push it. You have to understand the principle of timing. When the child's ready, you give it to them beforehand. You don't. And over the course of life, hopefully, you will actually build, we will actually build this incredible edifice. A life well lived is described in this Mishnah. I thank you for listening. My email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. As you know, we talk about ethics, but we also have a mitzvah podcast and a parsha podcast and a Jewish history podcast that needs more love and a Torah 101 podcast and a This Jewish Life podcast. You just go to Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts and search my last name, Walby, and you should have about, you know, five or 10 years of uninterrupted listening. But I hope to keep on producing more content. Give it a listen. Email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com.